Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, welcome to the first of Andrew Cutting's salons here in the wonderfully uh, refurbished Portsbridge Cinema. Uh, for those of you who know the building, this is not how it normally looks. It's been transformed beyond all recognition to this wonderful boutique space that we now uh, are currently enjoying. My name's Gareth, it's a real pleasure to welcome you all here to, to this very special event. Uh, many of you will know Andrew Cutting, of course, know it's very difficult to introduce such a person. We're glad that he's here at all. He was called the Gothic to Ashford, that's all we know. Um, and that's you can take it whichever way you see fit, probably all those ways actually. Um, because uh, the idea of Gothic and, and discussing um, the implicit imagination, but also a lot. And I think it's that idea that Cotting um, inhabits. He inhabits um, the space between the, the very powerfully present and the unknown behind that presence. So in that blockage idea um, might lie the key to the whole uh, afternoon. I have no idea what he's going to do. We've got a range of tools and accessories here. Um, that's the nature of the salon environment um, in which Cotting uh, resides. Um, it'll be fun. He'll keep his clothes on most of the time, as far as I know. Um, and broadly speaking, he's facing the right way, which is the way he greets people he hasn't seen for some time. Uh, there's another artist in the room, uh, this is Brian Goodwin, um, who's taller than Andrew, I think, just about. And he was greeted with, with that, um, that appellation, you're still facing the right way. So we're delighted that Andrew's still facing the right way. He's delighted to be there. Andrew That stuck. <laughs> that stuck, and I'm actually trying to kind of uh, wash out the image from my mind's eye as well. But that's kind of sidebar activity. Uh, today, in, in a way, I was, uh, I was approached by the Biennale uh, because I teach down at UCA um, just up the road in Canterbury. Uh, and the idea of uh, running presenting a salon, these salons that I've been running for almost 15 years, they started down in Maidstone uh, when UCA was also uh, kind of connected there with the site. And, and really, the the idea of a salon, it just came about, I was presenting salons to students in the lecture theatre, and all that sort of to this room today. And uh, so if you actually incorporate the word lecture, seminar, or anything at all remotely connected to academia, then students will kind of not turn up. And as soon as you introduce the idea of there being a salon, and maybe there being some free wine, or some tequila slammers, uh, some pole dancers, uh, then the students will flock in. And so I kind of, Claire and I set up this idea. Invariably, it was uh, misinformation, but the students would come, and the students would come from the department. So we, you know, I had to kind of mix it up a little bit. We would have time versus media students there. We had um, uh, at the time, I guess what we'd call an animation art studio uh, students. We'd have uh, graphic art students there. It was a kind of real mishmash. But one of the things that would always work, work really well. There are seats in here if you if you want to stay down there. There are seats. Um, it, was, it was just uh, an opportunity to kind of bombard students with stuff that either I was interested in or I was interested in, maybe something that I might be working on at the time. You might be pre kind of digital, pre the internet. I would bring in books, I would bring in, uh, I mean, one of the things that I would bring in at the very beginning, I had these oblique strategies, um, which um, Brian Eno and uh, Peter Schmidt had developed. I mean, some of you might be familiar with them, and the idea is that it encourages you to kind of think naturally. Uh, so if some of the students were stuck with their projects, uh, I would chuck them out into the audience, um, and they would have to pick up something that might say, who should be doing this job? How would they do it? That was one of them. But they're kind of at random. Give the game away. And I kind of felt that there was some correlation between what, uh, what the, the, these big strategies were about and what the sounds could be. Uh, and they didn't always need to be any kind of claim. Quite often I think you 
you're presenting work to students, if they, it's too um, too planned, if it's too structured, then there's no room for interaction, there's no room for happenstance. And so at the time, it would be mainly VHS stuff. It would, uh, I, could, I would access, it might be, if I've been to a show, uh, an artist, that other artist give me a catalog, I'd then be able to kind of hand that out. But they became really kind of, uh, I mean, I got more from them, maybe Clark got more from them as craft than the students did. So we would kind of take it in terms to, uh, to, to show work and connect. And, and uh, they would last about nine minutes, which we kind of felt was huge duration. So if they were going to go to the cinema and, and sit through um, Debbie Does Dallas, then there's no reason why they shouldn't come to the salon and, uh, and stay attentive for 90 minutes. Uh, sadly, Clara was, she lives here in Whistable, and she wanted to become a present this summer with me. Uh, she can't do that. She's actually starting work on her, her third feature. So she's up in, I think, Leeds at the moment. So the first piece of what I want to do, really, as a kind of, uh, as a homage to, to Clara, very much a, a kind of self-indulgent trip down memory, memory lane, is to, to show a piece of work that she made called Hermaphrodite Bikini. Um, it's a kind of uh, morally various piece of work. I had no idea really what the work was about. I used to ask what it's about. Uh, and all she could ever really say was that it was about bosoms and bras. So this is a piece of work about bosoms and bras. But what I loved about it is that it was kind of, it made sense. It made sense in a very atmospheric way. It's a word that I will use a lot today. Um, there's a kind of atmosphere about this piece of work. Today. I wouldn't go into the auditorium, but I wanted to mention was the, the music that was running um, by Andy Scott. Um, it's a piece of music which I guess in a way it's, um, it evolved. Its genesis was very much in, in dub rigor. And uh, Andy Scott, the music that he makes nowadays, is um, it's very, um, it involves cut-ups, almost kind of William Burroughs-esque cut-ups, bits that is, stolen and borrowed from um, other, other musics to create an amazing kind of atmospheric collage. And my, my roots in the kind of, I guess being an artist, were always, I was, I was, I was trying to create uh, an atmosphere which was inspired by my love of dub reggae. And dub reggae to me is a kind of, uh, it's an opera without the, the tedious, the, the librettos that very invariably infect um, the word opera. So instead of um, instead of being told what the what's going on, instead of being told about the script and the storyline, we're alone on the hill. There's a man with no arms and no legs. Where does he live? Where does he live? That would be the chorus. <laughs> Where does he live? Right, the youngest of them. Where does he live? Where does he live? He lives alone. He lives alone on the hill. On the hill. On the hill. On the hill. On the hill with no arms and no legs. Was he live alone? Was he live alone? So with dub reggae, you've got an atmosphere without all of the pedestrian kind of histrionics and being told ostensibly a really simple story. It was about atmosphere. And so the end stop bit at the beginning connects with that kind of uh, sensibility. There's something that hits you, it kind of moves you, it makes you feel different when I'm listening, or when I used to listen to the dub. And now, in a way, there's a, there's a plethora of music that, um, that has kind of evolved from that. You know, and, and, and there's a new kind of... Uh, I guess genre music called hauntology. Some of you might be familiar with hauntology. Uh, and it is, it's music kind of, it seeps into, it blows in through your, your pores, like the wind, 
and, um, and it kind of creates an atmosphere, and it can be very haunting. And this is exactly, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> this is exactly what happened when I first saw this piece of work by Clio. So this is for Clio. She called herself Gabriel after the Archangel because of her desire to be pure spirit only. She's outside sex. She wants to join the abstract being beyond sex. The angel being of the pure spirit.
house fighting with a lover. In an attempt to quell the row, the lover began to address me, unbuttoning my shirt. The bra shone out and the room was filled with divine rays. My skin looked radiant and we made passionate love. Uh, it's uh, here and now. Okay, you want to 
exceedingly unpleasant. So all remember he said, he said, this my son is the son, a prehistoric son. And this my son is the soil. And it was right here, right here, that it all began. All right here. So it takes you right back. Turn around, as if that wasn't enough, I go back for more. 
or the memory scroll up again, making sure as if to not make a mess of itself. So with such savageness, he lands again. He lands whoops a daisy, whoops a daisy, such uncaring behaviour. And then, stuff to make other stuff happen. 
this kind of an alchemical process, I guess. And then I would perform this live quite often. So we would go to clubs, and the, uh, the, the only thing that was kind of fixed were the, the four pieces of music. At the very beginning, we hear the Birds uh, the Los Angeles, from the songs of the Avernum, I produced music that I'd stumbled across when I was running at a market store. I'd never heard any music like that. There was an atmosphere to it, there was a, there was a lamentfulness, there was something incredibly uh, melancholic and yet energetic at the same time. The music had an atmosphere to it that I needed to, to use. The tango, again, I found it was a Cato record of best uh, tangos, which seemed to make sense. So I, they were stuck, they were fixed in the fourth studio that we had. So when we performed live, Layla would have to speed up and slow down a, a projector. And then I would be dressed in the same garb, running around around the circles on stage, uh, going back to the microphone and trying to kind of remember, uh, albeit I don't remember much, uh, and then repeat whatever he said I hadn't remembered into the microphone. So there seemed to be a kind of uh, fusion of performance happenstance, reverse engineering, uh, land art, piss taking, uh, the goons, uh, Benny Hill. I was kind of covering all bases. And, um, and to this day, you know, 30 odd years later, I'm still making the same piece of work. Um, so I think the students then kind of get, uh, I think, well, if that's, if that, if that, if that, I'll send them into the class. It kind of inspires them. And, and every time I see it, it's, it's an anomaly. If it works, it's times that I'm back, transported. It's incredibly nostalgic for me to know that uh, I had something, you know, I never kind of intellectualized what I was doing at the time. I, I didn't even begin to, to consider that it was important to articulate what you were doing. It just felt that that was a, an important thing to be doing. So that's why I showed Flippy Club. Um, and then the next piece of work, in a way, in fact, what I want to do first of all is go back and into the light on. Because, again, in the sounds, it would now be um, Clara's <coughs> touch. In the early days, she might read something or play something again, it was really musical, it might be some music. But I found this just recently in a book, um, and it's, it's um, Secret Lines by Great Artists, and it's really good, it's really easy to read. <laughs> Uh, and you can, um, it just says, Dada, a French children's word for a hobby horse, and rejected all norms and conventions, including the very notion of art. Of course, there is no art, which, which is what Dada is about. So there's two sentences there, which seem to kind of connect with Philippe Clark. Whereas if you want a bit of uh, liquid modernity and seek employment, we'll do it later. <laughs> I'll do two pages, if anybody's still awake. But there's a connection there. Um, yeah, the next piece of work I'd like to show um, is a piece of work that I, again, I was, um, I was at a live art festival, they had a sidebar, they were moving, uh, they were showing moving image pieces. Um, and this is a piece called uh, Bojono. It's an Italian filmmaker. And he, he set up um, a shot of black and white. They're kind of like really early crude surveillance cameras. And, um, what I thought about him is that he, what he was doing was kind of almost kind of trigger-happy-esque. He, he had set up some events within a public space. This is something that to this day I, I really enjoy doing, is kind of performing in public, engaging with the public, whoever they have to be, and then working them into kind of narratives. That's what I did uh, with my feature from Canada. But in Kojono, uh, there are actors and there are non-actors. There's something going on, there's something happening in this piece of work, which is truly profound. There's something incredibly overwhelming <coughs> about this piece of work, despite the fact that there's some new age music that really pisses me off. And I saw it on a big screen in 35mm um, in this live art festival. And, and, and I think the, the curator, he said, oh, 25 years ago, 
They like the idea of um, you know what's truth, what's documentary, what isn't documentary. Uh, you know who are the performers, who aren't the performers. But the message that I got from it, and this is kind of really I, I guess in the 80s when when AIDS was just kind of careering into our lives, there was something about it. There, it was full of um, implied narratives. It was resonant in, in the, the, the not knowing is what makes the work so powerful. Um, you felt like there was, in, there was a virus or an infection being passed on through these performers and the public, uh, which were kind of loosely around the idea of grief. You, you know, you go see four men, uh, I mean, figure I may cry, but you can't, there's no explanation as to why they're crying. I mean, some of you might have, any of you seen this before? Uh, in a public space, it's just on the street corner in Italy, run like that, and they're And um, it's about seven minutes, but within that seven minutes, there's an overwhelming kind of atmosphere of grief, there's an overwhelming atmosphere of, of, um, of sadness. Uh, it's, it's kind of accentuated by the music, uh, which is kind of a bit like Hollywood, it's telling you what to feel. But even if I was to play this silently, I guarantee that you, you, know, you, you would be moved, and, and it's, it's very hard to know why you're being moved. This is quite helpful.
quote to number 398 says, this sentence is a lie. Full stop. Uh, quote 399 says, something can be true and untrue at the same time. Full stop. Uh, quote 400, the whole content of my being shrieks in contradiction against myself. Con uh, uh, quote number 402, you don't know which ones, uh, who's writing these. Um, I guess some of them, but uh, a lot of them are actually David Shields. Uh, 402 says, we are, I know, not how, double within ourselves. The result that we do not believe that we believe, and we cannot rid ourselves of what we condemn. Quote 403, negative capability, capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after the fact and reason. Quote 405, great art is clear thinking about mixed feelings. It kind of goes on and on and on. Um, but the brilliant thing about the book, you get to the end with the index where you think, oh, great, who's who wrote, who said that? Uh, so you go to, oh, that's nice, yeah, oh, that's brilliant, oh, a bit Stuart Lee in there, oh, Werner Herzog, oh, brilliant, oh, fantastic. But what he says before you get to the index, as she says, um, this book contains hundreds of quotations that go unacknowledged in the body of the text. I'm trying to regain the freedom that writers from Montaigne all the way to William Burroughs took for granted and that we have lost. Your uncertainty about whose words you've just read is not a bug, but a feature. He then recommends that you actually tear out, he says, um, that we should tear out, yeah, all of the indexes, you'll never actually know who wrote what, where it comes from. Which is kind of a, it kind of gets very anti-Google, it's very anti this idea of needing to know who said what anti Wikipedia. But the reading experience, I think, in a way, there's, there's a kind of parallel, there's a metaphor for the way in which, you know, if you're an artist, even if you're a writer, being alive, you kind of, you, you cull, you trawl, some stiff stuff sticks. It's a kind of gleaning of ideas, other people's ideas invariably, that are sent through you as a kind of cipher. Um, and I want to, we kind of, I've got time for about three last little pieces. One of the pieces that I want to run is, this is a, a really dear friend, and uh, I used to show this to the animation students when they were in. It's called Rabbit. Some of you might have seen it by Ron Rage. I so he died about three years ago. But he found some flashcards in a jump shop. And they sat in the studio for years. And he's a kind of high-end animator who used to work with uh, U-Turn and Rolling Stones. But these, these flashcards for teaching kids how to spell uh, were really important. He knew that within them was a piece of work. Uh, and ultimately, he kind of gleaned, he pulled out, he coaxed out a, a narrative of sorts. It's that little morality tale. I kind of think about greed. Um, but uses uses these flashcards uh, as a kind of uh, bedrock, as a starting point, to make a uh, truly inspiring um, piece of work called Rabbit. And again, he sent a, a big trend for these texts that kind of run around. <laughs>
place, a place where anything could happen. So when I got there, I had to look around. In fact, I spent a long time looking around. And I did see the odd thing that looked a bit dodgy.
convicted. She is convicted. And he's reaped his rewards there. Sorry. Sent down through a mixer, 
so you, you, what you look at when you go into a gallery space, there's an installation, and on each screen you see one performer. So you might see the drummer, you might see the guitarist, you might see the lead guitarist, one of the singers, uh, you might see the bassist. And so he's kind of deconstructing uh, uh, the song. And this is the only thing I could find on the internet. But this would get a flavor of the music. Um, So they do. Um, but if you're interested in the modern world and fluids, 
Esse é um deles.